Hello, my name is Austin Habish, the founder of Think Catholic, your source for Catholic thought with both depth and devotion, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Joining me is Dr. Alan Fimister. Hello. As today we ask, what exactly is the good news or the gospel which our Lord Jesus Christ came to proclaim? And the Catholic thought on the topic as phrased contemporarily comes to us from Pope St. Paul, the sixth apostolic exhortation evangelization in the modern world, which states, quote, as the kernel and center of his good news, Christ proclaims salvation, this great gift of God, which is liberation from everything that oppresses man, but which is above all liberation from sin and the evil one, in the joy of knowing God and being known by him, of seeing him and of being given over to him, end quote. The gospel, according to Paul VI, is the good news of our salvation. But salvation from what exactly, and by what means, and to what end? These are our questions, each of which could fill an episode in its own right, but in brief, let us take up the first. What did Jesus come to save us from? Well, uh, sin and death and the evil one, uh, I suppose. Um, uh, Human nature um, seeks happiness and that happiness consists in a certain flourishing of of the life of man, and um, God, uh, from the beginning, raised us beyond the happiness and the flourishing that would uh, would be merely appropriate or proportionate to our nature, to something infinitely greater, which our first father and mother were already given a foretaste of, and um, and by their disobedience, it was lost. And uh, we inherited uh, that forfeiture. We were born into a world where mankind had the taste of infinite happiness and had had the cup knocked from his lips. And, uh, and the beginning there is the beginning already of, of eternal torment because the, the, the torment of the damned to which all human beings are now doomed by nature if we stand apart from Christ, that torment consists in knowing that infinite happiness was ours and we forfeited it by our own fault. Uh, and so we're already standing there on the edge of, of ruin. And, uh, and because that happiness fulfills everything that is in our nature as well as completely transcending it, we find that we're completely incapable of even finding the happiness that is just human and natural. Uh, we, we can't do anything about that. It, it's, we, we have the, the, the taste of the lost uh, infinite bliss is still there somewhere in the back of our mouths. That music, that tune, and, uh, nothing as you said before, that music in the back yeah. of our mind that's constantly ringing, you know, reminding us of what we, we've lost. Go ahead, Doc. Absolutely, yeah. So we're... So we're we're all from the moment that reason awakes and God begins to give us some assistance to turn again. Uh, we begin, if we don't uh, follow that assistance in um, unbreakingly, we, we begin to turn to try and find infinite happiness from finite objects and drive ourselves mad. And as a result, we find ourselves lost beneath the dominion of God's greatest enemies, the fallen angels. 
who preceded us down the road to ruin and who hate us because uh, our destiny is to those of us who are saved our destiny is to replace them on their lost thrones uh, in heaven and so they hate human beings with uh, an unimaginable venom and uh, we were separated from Christ and and as children of wrath we are we are abandoned to their dominion so so we're trapped in a world of sin on the edge of eternal punishment and uh, left prey to the to the depredations of the fallen angels and it's from that terrible condition that Christ rescues us it, you really couldn't picture more or a bleaker picture than that just a more terrifying <laughs> scene that we're really we're born into and there's two things you mentioned, Doc, there that I think all of us realize that really points to the nature of something lost at the beginning. So that you're mentioning here that desire, that we have this desire for the infinite, that we're tearing apart finite things to fill, which cannot be done. I think everyone, if they take an honest inventory of themselves, will see that that's the case. And the second is, is that death. There is something kind of mysterious about death. On the, on the one hand, all of us by nature die, and at the same time, all of us naturally desire to live forever. So we're within ourselves strangely contrary and in opposition. What we want by nature is thwarted by nature. And so something is very clearly broken in us. And as we spoke in a previous podcast, since there is a God and all things that are created must derive themselves from the Creator... This brokenness cannot come from an all-good and all-powerful and all-benevolent, uh, all-intelligent uh, creator. He could not make inherently broken things, so that brokenness must come from us. And since it extends to all men, it must have come from our very beginning or just short of the beginning. And as you mentioned, through the only person whose decisions could justly implicate all of us, which is the head of our race by revelation we know to be Adam. So to save us from an unremitting or an unending death, that mystery of death, Doc, do you think most people or people even grasp just how strange that is, that we want something by nature that is completely denied by nature? St. Thomas in the uh, Summa Contra Gentiles, he says that uh, that we, we have a sense that we are, that at least our intellects are are indestructible, they're, they're immortal, that there is something in us which is resistant to death. And yet we also have a sense of the fact that there's nothing in the intellect that isn't first in the senses, that we're completely reliant on the body and the body is is integral to who we are. But we also have a sense that we are we don't have the power to hold on to our bodies. Right. That that our our, our soul is too weak to hold on to our bodies. It's like a like a sort of a really heavy ball of metal or something that you've managed to pick up with your fingers and you can tell in your fingers that it's it's going to eventually your Fall. fingers will weaken it will slip from your grasp and you don't have the strength to to catch it again and uh, and and so we have this feeling that 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 we we don't have the power to hold on to our bodies that they're integral to us but that our that the deepest part of our minds is 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 resistant to destruction mm-hmm. but that, that it will be stripped of of what it needs to operate so there's this sense that it we are things made to last forever 
and yet we are dying and we can't stop it. Therefore, something must be wrong because, as you say, that's not, that can't be how it's supposed to be Absolutely. because what's the point of having a non-functioning intellect surviving forever? forever. So, right. As yeah. you mentioned previously, not you wouldn't even consider someone a human person if they're a disembodied soul since we're rational animals. You've, la- you've lost the composite. You mentioned that punishment I think sometimes people, when they hear about an eternal punishment, the punishment of the damned, sometimes it thinks it sounds a little disproportionate to the crime, this mysterious crime at the beginning. But it, it, it is important to note that the degree of the punishment is determined in part by the dignity of the person offended. And so the example I always like to use is if someone hits their sibling, well, they're not they're not going to jail, but if they hit a cop or they hit their, their spouse, they are going to jail. And if they go to assault the president, they might be killed on the way. So it's the exact same action, but the dignity of the person who's being offended differs. And so does the degree of the resulting punishment. And for someone to slight God himself, who is of infinite dignity with that full knowledge, would justly merit that infinite degree of punishment, which since our human nature cannot bear an infinite degree of punishment, it must be infinite in time, which is what we call hell. And and there there is a distinction that needs to be made between what we inherit, which comes down from Adam, which is that privation, and then those culpable decisions which we make once we reach the age of reason. Which Doc, I don't know if you'd be willing to flesh out some of that. Certainly, yes. The the uh, solemn definition of the Council of Florence, the 17th Ecumenical Council, uh, Letento Celi, uh, part of that definition, so it's infallible church teaching, um, teaches that uh, those who die in actual mortal sin, so that means sins committed against God or neighbor, grave sins after attaining the age of reason, or in original sin only, so that means simply deprived of the supernatural uh, dignity that Adam lost through his sin, go immediately to hell, um, but with diverse punishments. So so, so what it's saying is, is that, that to die without the dignity that Adam lost uh, is a different punishment to die, uh, to die having uh, committed the... Um, having committed particular offences against God after having attained to reason. Um, and um, uh, St. Thomas also says, and in fact, St. Cyril, the apostle of the Slavs in the ninth century, he makes this comparison. He says that um, he says that it's a bit like, you know, you've been raised to, a, your ancestor had been raised to great dignity, been raised a duke or something, and, and then he commits treason against the king, as a result, you'd, you're not born a duke. You don't inherit the great dignity which was given to you by, it was given to your ancestor and would have been inherited by you, but you don't suffer any additional positive punishment beyond that. Um, but uh, to, to commit particular actual sins against God once you attain to reason is like repeating your ancestor's treason. You're actually taking up arms against the king yourself. You're not just losing something you would have gained had your ancestor not done so and therefore you are specifically punished for that and and that's where the distinction between the forfeiture of supernatural destiny which comes from adam and then the particular punishment 
given for sharing in his sin. Which Thank is... God, the tradition of the church is that Adam himself repented and, and died in a state of grace. Um, but, uh, but nevertheless, we still inherit his state of alienation from God. Great distinction. Thank you, Doc. And in speaking to those actual sins that one commits in their life, we need, we need a Savior from that as well. Uh, St. Paul, I, I, when I consider this question, I think about St. Paul in Romans chapter 7. He says that if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And how I reflect on that is that it's easy to overestimate our goodness so long as we have nothing to compare it to, like the law. So without the law to tell us what a good person actually looks like, how he acts, then in our own eyes, it, it is easy to imagine that we don't need a savior to save us from ourselves, that we, we look pretty, we can look pretty good in our own eyes until we take a look at the law. So here's the law, it's Matthew 22. Someone comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what is the, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And who in the world would be crazy enough to claim that he has always and everywhere fulfilled that law, kept that commandment. Short of probably, maybe you're, you, Doc, huh? Have you kept? Maybe, God willing, uh, probably Claire. You know, <laughs> we can say Claire maybe has. Uh, but the sober truth is that outside of some act of divine mercy, our situation is really as it's described in Romans, that none is righteous. No, not one all have turned aside. Together they've all gone wrong. None does good, and and I think most of it of us probably get this. So the next temptation is to say, "Oh well, but God is good, so everything's going to be fine." But the we don't realize uh, the more good somebody is, the more they're going to dislike evil. So the the worst men they don't even they may not even see evil, and then the best men they can't even bear the thought of it. And so if God is all good then what must a lot, if not some, probably many of our actions and our thoughts outside of that mercy look like in his sight? And it, it'll say uh, in, in, yeah. in Scripture, you know, it's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And one last piece here, Doc, uh, C.S. Lewis, he has this great line on uh, concerning this topic. He says, in Mere Christianity, he says, Quote, God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun, but they need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger, according to the way you react to it, and we have reacted the wrong way. End quote. So, yeah, I mean, um, St. Anselm says it would be better for God to have destroyed the universe than allowed a single sin to be committed and uh, the fact that the universe persists despite the presence of sin is in a way a hint of the fact that god is going to provide a redeemer because otherwise he wouldn't do that we don't have a a proper sense of the nature of sin because we're mired in it so mm -hmm. uh, as our lord says in the sermon on the mount you know the intellect is clouded um the eye of the mind is clouded the more the more it, it sins. And we do see that with, you know, there's certain people who lie so often and so casually that they just can't help themselves. And, and we, we're tempted to think of them as, as lesser men, uh, but we don't realize that they're just a, 
a more obvious version of our own sinfulness. And there are many saints who have prayed to actually see their own soul as it really is in the sight of God. And they've all said, don't do that. It's <laughs> was a it, bad idea. Was it Saint, you can't cope. I think it was St. John Vianney who asked. St. John Vianney, yeah, and he was, right, yeah, I think he was bedridden for like a whole yes. week just lying in bed, just petrified. Uh, so and St. Thomas, uh, not St. Thomas, excuse me, St. John Henry Newman says, the Catholic Church holds it better for sun and moon to drop from heaven, for all the earth to fail, and the many millions on it to die of starvation in the greatest agony, as far as temporal affliction allows, than that one soul, I would not say be lost, but should commit one single venial sin, should tell one poor untruth or should steal one small farthing without excuse we, we just we, don't we just don't have a sense of, of that because because we're, we're as i say we're mired in it we just don't we can't see how how terrible it is and how impossible it is that the living god and sin should occupy the same space as it were yeah well, just the profound dignity of, of god and the resultant depravity that that sin is because of what he deserves, his goodness. So, so that's what we need to be saved from. What then, according to the good news, were we saved by? By what means? And if the fault lies in man, then we need a man to make up for it. And since this fault is against him who is infinite, we need an act of infinite goodness or merit to make up for it. And so what then does God do? In the fullness of time, he sends his son into the world born of the virgin to redeem those born under Adam. And as man, whatever he does could count for men. And as God, whatever he would do would be infinitely good and meritorious. And San Alphonsus Liguori gives this, this great summary. He says, to redeem us, it would have been sufficient for Jesus to shed a single drop of blood or a single tear or to offer a single prayer, for the prayer of a divine person would have been of infinite merit and therefore sufficient for the salvation of the whole world or of an infinite number of worlds. And that's so true. Do we realize that the hypostatic union and the consequences of it? So the, the next question, Doc, is the crucifixion. Why go all the way uh, to death and the, and the worst death imaginable? if it would have been sufficient for Jesus to offer a single prayer because of that union within the word of the humanity and his divinity. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, this is an important difference between the Catholic tradition and, and Protestantism that people often miss. Uh, the Catholic Church teaches uh, a doctrine called uh, vicarious satisfaction, whereas Luther's doctrine was founded on a an idea called a penal substitution, um, we, uh, to explain the Catholic teaching, uh, we hold that uh, as God made us from nothing and he is infinite in dignity and he elevated us to an infinite good uh, and we spurned that good and we offended against the infinite debt of gratitude that we owe him and his infinite dignity, we are, we are faced with a terrifying triple weight of unpayable offense that we have committed against God. And um, there's just nothing we can do. We can't possibly remedy that. And uh, so there needs to be someone, as you said, Austin, there needs to be someone who shares our nature and therefore can represent us, but is infinite in majesty and power um, so that he's capable of paying the debt, which is why God 
the second person of the Blessed Trinity assumes human nature so that he, an infinite person, uh, shares in our nature and is able to stand in our place and redeem us. Now, um, in the weight of, in, in the face of infinite guilt, there are two possible resolutions. One is infinite punishment, as mentioned, which obviously we can't endure, and so it has to be perpetual punishment. And the other is, uh, the other is infinite satisfaction, uh, and an action of infinite worth has to be offered um, to make up for the offence that uh, individual men and the human race as a whole has offered to God. Um, now, as you say, um, because of his infinite dignity, a single drop of our Lord's blood would have sufficed to redeem the world. And um, in fact, when the Protestant Reformation was just beginning, the great Dominican theologian, Cardinal Cajetan, was sent to um, interview Luther. And he told him that if he would just accept that a single drop of Christ's blood would be sufficient to redeem the world, then he could walk away as a Catholic in good standing. I had never heard Luther that. Was, that's, that's fascinating. Yes, it is, yeah. And Luther was quite taken aback and had to sort of think about it, but he hardened over oh, overnight and, and refused to accept the offer from Cajetan. Um, but the reason why is because... Um, uh, so we hold that that after, in fact, the document which Cajetan uh, gave to Luther is a document called Unigenitus Dei Filius that oh, was issued yeah. by Pope Clement VI yep. in the 14th century. And um, and he says, well, he asked that very question, why, why, given that a single drop of our Lord's blood is sufficient to redeem every possible world, um, would he have gone to the uttermost extremity of death on the cross uh, to redeem us? And he says, because he thereby merited the, the, the all the merits of all the members of the mystical body and the new heaven and the new earth. So he he didn't just redeem us from all our sins. He also he also created already on the cross uh, the universe, the glorious, sinless, perfect universe suffused with divinity, uh, which Christ will will raise from the ashes of the final conflagration when he returns at the end of time. And, uh, and which we are meriting through his merits uh, in all of our lives when we're in a state of grace. When when our Lord says, um, uh, in my heart, Father's house, there are many mansions. Uh, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. Um, the, the mansions he's talking about are, are the glory of the new heaven and the new earth, which he has already merited on the cross, but which he is going, he is going to merit all of our good acts which are really his acts within us, Christ living within us, which will bring about the new heaven and the new earth. What does um, uh, so? That's what is, the purpose of our Lord's death on the cross. Um, in Mel Gibson's Clash of the Christ, to quote a, a slightly absurd popular source, I mean, yep. it's a very great film, uh, but he says, um, I don't know where he gets this from, but he has uh, our Lord meets Our Lady on the way of the cross, which is a tradition of the church that that happened. And our Lord says, he, he says something which appears in the book of Revelation. He says, behold, mother, I make all things new. And, uh, and this is an allusion to the fact that he is lifting up the entire universe, the heavens and the earth on his shoulders on the cross and, and creating the universe anew through redeeming the human race. What does uh, Trent say? It quotes Augustine, uh, and I might remember, but it's 
uh, in crowning yes. our merits, God crowns his own gifts. Is that correct? That's right, yes. And so That's exactly it, yes. I, I think we'd have less uh, disputes amongst our, our other Christian brothers if they understood that's exactly what we mean by merit, that it's, it's, it's Christ's merits, which are then allowing us to merit in turn as his mystical body. Just the confusion around that, I think if that was dispelled, there would be a lot less. Uh, we would realize that there's a lot less contention between us. And so for every additional drop of blood, he is purchasing us for an additional degree of glory. And you mentioned in the John 14, the mansions. St. Paul will talk about these differing degrees of glory when he says star, a difference from star in heaven. And then uh, St. Paul will say himself, he's caught up to the third heaven. Well, if there's a third heaven, then what's what's it mean to be a second <laughs> heaven or a first? So we're, we do have a distinction within heaven. In that document you're speaking to here, the Unigenitus Filius, I have it, uh, says, uh, speaking to this point, quote, Therefore, how great a treasure did the good Father acquire from this for the church militant, so that the mercy of so great an effusion was not rendered useless, vain, or superfluous, wishing to lay up treasures for his sons, so that thus the church is an infinite treasure uh, to men, end quote. The other aspect of why the abundance of suffering, St. John Chrysostom, and this is a, a great reflection, particularly as we're in Lent moving up to the Triduum. John Chrysostom says, quote, even though a single prayer would have been sufficient for man, it would not have been enough for God, who by loving us so fiercely willed to show us the depths of his love and so inspire us to love him in return, end quote. So to inspire us to love him in return. I was speaking with a lady who would not consider herself religious, and she kept repeating to me this word, fear. Do you, do you worship God? Do you follow God? Is it fear? Are you afraid of what? And I told her it's gratitude. It's gratitude. That's the heart of the apostolate. That's its response. All that we do, all of our actions and our prayers, our worship, it is in response out of gratitude to what we have already received. And if creation itself wouldn't be sufficient to merit our gratitude, a life worth of gratitude, a gratitude will then our Lord shows us himself crucified. Uh, you know, what, what more? In fact, go ahead. Gratitude is, is, so imp- is, is the central act of the Catholic faith. The Eucharist, the thank you, is the representation of what our Lord accomplished on the cross. He, he said the thank you that Adam refused to say. Um, when uh, when uh, St. Paul says in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That, that meaning that, being that unlike Adam and Satan, um, he didn't take the uh, the participation in the divine nature which God offered to the human race and to the angels as something which could be snatched. Mm-hmm. He took it as something which you, you had to say please and thank you mm-hmm. for, and, and that's what, um, because it, it wasn't owed uh, by God to man. God chose to elevate men and angels to share in his nature, and all he asks is that we recognize the gratuity of that act. And and that that is what Christ is doing. He's showing that that um, on the cross that thank you is due to God, that we failed to offer it, and now this 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 great and terrible and glorious and terrifying act of thanksgiving is offered on the cross in our place to make up for the 
for the millennia of ingratitude which have stained human nature. I think St. Thomas will also say that all sin is materially ingratitude. So someone has to take the raw material of ingratitude and then shape it into those various other sins. So he takes ingratitude, one man takes ingratitude, he shapes it into lust, another one into gluttony or envy or wrath, but it's all made out of the same stuff. And that stuff is ingratitude. I remember when I was a Carthusian, I was on a walk with one of the Carthusians uh, who sat next to me in the choir. And I asked him what his favorite psalm was. And his favorite psalm, this is a Carthusian, solemn professed. If someone is wondering what would make a man a Carthusian to spend his whole life in cell and silence and cold and in beautiful union with God, but the austerity. And it's that psalm, and maybe you know the number, Doc. What then shall I render to the Lord? for all that he has done for me. Uh, the, the cup of salvation I shall raise, which some of the doctors will say that cup of salvation, which the psalmist is raising in gratitude, is sharing in Christ's sufferings. So our gratitude in part, it's, it's suffering along with our Lord as he did for the salvation of others. So, But there's more here. So the church, so Jesus, he was crucified. That merit, that act of infinite merit, it was done by Jesus. It was not done by you and I, Doc. So how can it count for us? And here we have uh, Colossians 1.18, which describes Jesus as the head of the body, the church. And then how does one become part of that body? 1 Corinthians 12.13, it says, for by one spirit, we are all baptized into the one body. And so even though it was just the head of the church, which died on Calvary, which infinitely merited for all men, even though it was just the head, when we become part of that body through our baptism, then the merits of the head are are transfused, pass into the rest of the body. And the analogy I'll, I'll, I'll use when I'm speaking to people about this is, if someone robs a bank and he takes out the money with his hands, there is a sense in which he could say before the court, well, you know, I didn't take this money. This was, uh, you know, these, these hands of mine, they took the money. <laughs> but we're not going to, you know, chop his hands off and throw him in jail. We're, we're going to put the whole body in jail. We're going to ascribe the crime to the person. So in an analogous way, even though it was just the head that died on the cross, by becoming part of his body, those merits count for us as well. Yeah, I, I, I like to use and uh, develop the analogy that St. Cyril uses and say, imagine that, you know, the king had made me a duke and for no particular reason, just because he's a nice guy. And, and I then committed treason against him and he was naturally rather offended. And I was, I was there on death row waiting to meet my terrible fate for my ingratitude. And imagine then my sister went off and discovered that there was some terrible plot and that in fact, uh, um, the coronation was going to be blown up with a small nuclear device by Mr. Putin. And uh, she snuck off to Russia and she found out how to defuse the nuclear device exactly when it was going to happen and where it was going to. They caught, they captured her and tortured her. She escaped. She got back and she defused the bomb just in time. Um, and uh, and then the king says, well, this is pretty amazing. You know, uh, um, what can I reward you with? And she says, please don't execute my brother. Uh, and can you restore him to his dignity? That's amazing. Yeah. But if I, all I need to do in order to participate in that is to accept what my sister has done on my behalf. Um, uh, now then I need to be a, 
a need to be great, grateful and a, and a constructive citizen and, and live up to the incredible deed that she did in order to save me from, from my deserved fate. If I refuse to own her and say, you know, I don't repent of a thing that I did and I'd do it again if I could, then the king would rightly say, well, it's wonderful that you did all this for your brother, but I'm afraid he's, he, I can't release him. I can't, I can't r remove his punishment because he doesn't, he's he obstinate. doesn't own you. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's obstinate. Uh, the, the, the problem with the, the Protestant theory of, of vicarious satisfaction is, sorry, of, of penal, of penal substitution yeah. rather, is there will be equivalent to my sister doing none of that, but just going to see the king and saying, could you please execute me instead? It's and the king would, and then the king would say, apparently according to the Protestant theory, well, that's fine. Yes, I, I, I don't care who I execute. I'm just really annoyed, so I just want to execute somebody. So I'm happy to execute you, even though you're completely innocent, and I'll release uh, your brother. Now the problem with that is that there's no, there's no way, in, in humanly speaking, that could possibly be just. And uh, so, it's, it's, so we can't understand how it could be just in regard to God. And it's true, of course, that our Lord endures death on our behalf because he enters a world which is defined by the punishment to which we are subjected and he encounters and undergoes all the terrible things that we've unleashed through our sin. But it's not the actual suffering of our Lord. It's the charity, the infinite charity of the divine person of our Lord Jesus Christ, which merits through that suffering um our liberation from sin and you can and, and all we need to do is associate ourselves with it the in body. faith and baptism and then live a life worthy of the deed that he did for us you can see how that idea in a sense it, it incriminates the father if it if it really does look like there's just a bloodthirst you know someone has to die for this and uh well you know whoever it happens to be i just you know someone has to be put to death and and it it does it 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 really jives people the wrong way and it gives them just a very bad view of god the father as opposed to the truth which as you said when when pure goodness comes into a wicked and evil world which jesus will say is is under the power of the evil one well there's really only one way this can go i mean look at socrates socrates wasn't god himself but he he went around teaching and if you read the apology he, he'll say what have I done? I've, I have spent my whole life for the benefit of the state. And what is my reward? Well, I'm being killed. I'm being put to death here. So just really the result of being a good person in, in such a fallen place. Um, yeah, it's a very important distinction there. So in the last note, is, we're talking about by means. By what means were we saved? We, we do have to speak about perseverance so that one can step into the mystical body of Christ, but God does not coerce our love. As long as we're alive, we can remove ourselves from grace. The the first John five sixteen is is where I normally turn to when I speak to people about this. That there's a distinction here being made. Um, if anyone commits a sin that is not deadly, pray to God. God will heal him for a sin that is not deadly. There is deadly sin. I don't tell you to pray for that. And what what would this deadly sin be? And some people will point to the sin against the Holy Spirit, which the Church Fathers luckily give us those really uh, important distinctions about what that would actually mean. But in Matthew 19, the young young wealthy ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do inherit, to inherit eternal life? And he says, keep the commandments. Well, if I have to keep the commandments to enter into life, then to not keep the commandments would mean not to enter into life. 
In John 15, 5, Jesus will say, Abide in me. If anyone doesn't abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch. The branches wither, they're brought together, and they're burned. So there, there is a, a very real necessity to persevere towards the end in God's grace, which I can cut myself off from through this mortal deadly sin and breaking one of the Ten Commandments, which I knew uh, and I full, uh, freely chose, to which then Jesus gives us that additional sacrament, which has been retained through the apostolic succession in the Catholic Church, which is John twenty twenty three, when he breathes on his apostles and he says, any sins that you forgive are forgiven. And any sins you retain are retained. So when I when I speak to people who aren't Catholic, when I'm going through the neighborhood, a lot of times the discussion will center around forgiveness. So you've been baptized. Well, so you haven't broken one of the Ten Commandments since baptism, which everyone will agree that they have. They've broken various numbers of them. So then what about forgiveness? What forgiveness is available post-baptism for those who have disobey Jesus's words there to keep the commandments. And we have the answer in the Catholic faith. We have that additional sacrament confession through the priest. So last... He who says he has no sin is a liar and there is no truth in him. Uh, this is the this is the difficulty. And yet our Lord says, um, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Um, so, so it has to be that through through our Lord's work on the cross, there is there is restoration. He, he demands of us the, the fulfillment of the great commandment, and yet he gives us the capacity to be restored. Um, and, and without that, we have this idea that we're just perpetually mocking our Lord's sacrifice on the cross by falling away and, and not being reincorporated. Uh, and it becomes, a, it becomes the idea that God looks away from our sins um, but doesn't make us righteous. He doesn't put a new spirit within us. As you said, he, he came to make all things new. I make all things new. That sanctifying grace, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it makes us something different. And with that difference, that the faculty, with the divine life in us, is then the command of gratitude to keep the commandments and love of God. And so this last question, to what end then were we saved for we know what we were saved from, we know by what means we were saved, but what for, to what end did God save us? And from my side, the the verse that comes to mind is Second Peter 1 4. These great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Who um who was it that's the father that said Jesus was made man that we might be made God. Is that Athanasius? Uh, it is so on, Athanasius on, yes. on the incarnation. So, so the beatific vision. What, what do we mean by that? that you know, being God. Well, Saint in John God. says. Saint John says in the first uh, in his first letter he says, uh, "My children, we are my 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 beloved." I think he says, "We are God's children now. It has not yet appeared what what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like Him." because we shall see him as he is. So this is the, the highest unimaginable good, which in a way only the Catholic faith truly professes to be our end, which is to, to know God as he knows himself and therefore love him as he loves himself and so share in his nature. 
Um, and this is the unmediated intellectual apprehension of the divine essence, the highest possible glory which any creature could ever possibly attain. Uh, and and this, this is the hope which constitutes the universal assembly, the Catholic faith, the Catholic Church, and and, uh, and 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 the Catholic Church is the only one which really, which really offers it. Um, uh, that those who separated themselves in the 16th century, they the 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 the, the, the concentration on on the removal and substitution of punishment means that 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 the idea becomes much more one of of just restoration of the original state. The the idea of the substance of things hoped for is is very much dissipated in many cases. Uh, the those who separate themselves through schism in the 11th century, they've developed this idea that 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 the soul never actually attains to the divine essence, only to energies or operations of God. Uh, it's striking um, uh, the 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 a controversial 15th century Dominican Savonarola. He observed that in fact, really, it is only Christ's church, which truly offers to man this most terrifying and sublime destiny, um, the actual vision of God in his essence as he truly is. Um, is. This is a hope which is beyond the capacity of human nature, and it requires divine power to even even conceive of it. Um, as St. Paul says, I hath not seen nor ear heard, nor yet hath it entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for those that love him and reveal to us through his Spirit. I think also of that term. So Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What do we mean by eternity here in the context of the beatific vision? And Boethius gives us this really beautiful definition when he says eternity is the simultaneous whole and perfect possession of interminable life. So eternity is, it's not necessarily just going on and on and on, but it's, it's possessing the whole in one moment, in this unending now, in a similar way as, as God does. And as kind of an examination of conscience, I, I think we should take inventory of our heart. How badly do we want that end? When we think about heaven, what do we picture? Do we think, you know, heaven is all the food, you know, is it the buffet? Is it the, you know, the weekend at the beach? Is it the cruise? Well, that might tell us a little bit about ourselves. You know, we're, we're rational animals. If we're leaning towards the animal side, well, then our, our idea of perfect bliss is going to be a lot more flesh, you know, a lot more, you know, the food, the drink, the bodily pleasures. But our highest faculties, that's the intellect, that's the will. So the more rational we become in this, in the rational animalness of us, the more human we are, the more badly we should desire that, to gaze upon perfect truth, complete truth, goodness, in, in not just a forever, but in a, a now, a containing at that one moment, the simultaneous whole, perfect possession of interminable life. And the final cause, as we call the goal as uh, Trent will say, the final cause of our salvation, it's the glory of God and of Christ, life everlasting, but the glory of God that we glorify. What is that other line? Uh, the, the life of man is the contemplation of God and the, is it the glory the of God? The life of man 
Yeah, the, the glory of God is a living man, and the life of man consists in beholding God. Uh, that's um, St. Irenaeus so the, in the second century. Um, uh, of course, St. Paul says in the second letter to the Corinthians, he says, the God who commanded light to shine in the darkness, who created the universe, he means the God who commanded light to shine in the darkness, has shone in our hearts and revealed the light of the glory of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because, of course, faith is already the beginning the of the participation in God's knowledge of himself, which will bear fruit in eternity. Uh, at the end of the Divine Comedy, Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, the poet is is given an anticipation of the beatific vision, and, and he's, he's sort of floating there amidst the, the glory of the church triumphant. And uh, um, St. Bernard prays to the Blessed Virgin that she pray to God to allow the poet an, uh, an anticipation of, of the beatific vision itself. And uh, and he he turns to Dante, St. Bernard, to indicate to him that, that, that he is going to be permitted this. And, and G.K. Chesterton did a beautiful translation of the verses of the Divine Comedy that follow. It's the, the last, last uh, last canto of, of the did he poem. translate the whole work or just the end there? no just those oh, just okay. those um and he says uh, saint bernard turned to me that i should look but i had turned already caught the view searched the unfathomable ray of rays which by itself and to itself is true then was sight mightier than man's speech. Speech snapped before it like a flying spell, and memory and all that time can teach before that splendid outrage failed and fell. Wow. So, so in fact, the, 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 what Dante says at the end of the Commedia is that he, is that he can't describe the Beatific vision to you. Yeah. Words come to their end because all human concepts have shattered Can't even in, in, in before the sight of God as he is in himself. The divine glory. As, as some last going forth thoughts from us, Doc, I would say to those listening, what Jesus has saved us from, what, by what means he has saved us, and what he has saved us for, let us take inventory of our gratitude. Is, is my life one endless Eucharistia? Is it one unending thank you? From the morning I wake up to when I go to sleep, a thank you for creation. I don't need to be here, but I am here, and I need someone to say thank you to, and that is God, and he's awaiting that thank you. And then this eternal life, this uh, the possession of the whole, to, to be God in God, the beatific vision, is my life a life of thank you. By God's grace, let us, let us make it be so. That's what I would I'd say. Go ahead, Doc. Yes, I um, uh, the um, yes, I sorry, slightly speechless. Um, the the um, <laughs> the yes, Chesterton it's, quote. It's, it's, I mean, it's just uh, it's <laughs> profound. So I understand. Yes, it's in, it's impossible to begin to imagine the glory that uh, that's why Saint John says um, uh, we do not. It does not yet appear what we shall be, because because it's beyond, by definition, anything that can be conceived or imagined. Saint Thomas Aquinas says, the divine substance surpasses every form that the intellect reaches, and it is therefore impossible to apprehend it by knowing what it is, and yet knowing God as He is in Himself, knowing what God is, the the, the thing that Saint Thomas demanded when he was a little boy, being taught in the 
Abbey of Monte Cassino, he banged his fist on the table and he said, what is God? Wow. And that's, that's the question <laughs> which is answered in, in the Beatific Vision. Yep. And, and it's only possible because, as St. Thomas says, the divine substance surpasses every form, every species that the intellect reaches. There's no concept that the human mind could occupy the human mind um, that could that could allow us to know God. And so instead, God, the eternal Logos, enters into the human intellect in the Beatific vision, no longer clothed in the veil of faith as he does uh, our baptism, but unclothed and and. and and transparent in his divinity as he was on Mount Tabor. He enters into our intellect and through the Logos, the word himself, as through a species, God himself, his own knowledge dwelling in our mind, through God's knowing of himself, we know God in himself. And so we participate in his nature and enter into everlasting glory. Amen. Well, what more can be said? So the gospel, the good news of our salvation from sin and death and damnation, uh, from the infinitude of the goods which do not satisfy our infinite desire by means of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ by his infinite merits, the abundant love poured out for us, and then our responding gratitude to him for that. And to what end? That we may be God's in God, participating in the divine nature. By God's grace, may we attain it, Lord, enlarge our hearts that we may desire it. This is Think Catholic. My name is Austin Habish, along with Dr. Alan Fumister, and thanks again for joining us.